Welcome to the Calling the Quarters podcast. I'm your host, Dean Jones. This is Season 2, Episode 1. Today, I am talking to Linda Radich. She is the author of four books, including The Lore of Elfland, Secrets from the Bronze Age to Middle-Earth. She is also the author of a new book, The Secret History of Christmas Baking, Recipes and Stories from Tomb Offerings to Gingerbread Boys. Linda is a paper crafter, soap maker, and eclectic writer who loves to explore museums, grave mounds, and old coal sightings. She lives in northern New Jersey. I had a great time talking to Linda. I'm going to take you now to my conversation with her. Welcome to the Well Season Librarian podcast. I'm your host, Dean Jones. Today, I'm talking with Linda Radish. She's the author of the upcoming book, History of Christmas Baking, Recipes and Stories from Tomb Offerings to Gingerbread Boys. This is coming out in September, and it's available on Amazon for pre-order, and it'll be available in all better bookstores. Linda, welcome to the podcast. Hi, happy to be here. Now, for our listeners who are not familiar with your work, can you talk about yourself a little bit and tell us where you're from, where you live now, and what you do? I'm from New Jersey, and uh, I currently live about five miles and just over the Watcham Mountains from where I grew up. Um, I'm on the Passaic River, if there's anybody from New Jersey listening. Um, I think there are, yeah. Northern New Jersey. Yeah, no, most of northern New Jersey is on the Passaic River. In fact, everywhere you turn here, you're on the Passaic River. Um, so let's see. I do not have a degree. I refer to myself as a rabid autodidact. I have a high school diploma and some college. Um, I think I learned, you know, half of what I know I learned in school, half I learned just from reading the encyclopedia back in the days before the internet. Um, I've always been interested in a lot of different things, arts and crafts, language is big with me, ancient stuff, and basically like everything that like you don't learn about in school. It was, you know, if there was something, well, we're gonna learn about this, and this is also interesting, but we're really gonna learn about this. I want the thing that's off to the side, uh, the obscure, and um, there's not, you can't really get a college degree in the obscure. And so, but writing for Llewellyn has been um, great because uh, I've written a lot of articles for their almanacs over the years. And, um, you know, I decided, well, well, what am I interested in? Um, I'll write an article about that. And then I do the research and I find out about it. I want to jump in on that. Um, Now, you've done a lot of writing and you've written for um, many publications through Llewellyn. And you've written, for, you've written several books that we'll go into. What, what time in your life did writing kind of come up as something that you knew that you'd be doing long term? Um, I wish I'd, I remember I, I was seven and I wrote my first picture book on a paper bag and I, I cut it up to make it into a book. I've always loved books. Um, Maurice Sendak told a story about how he, he got a book for Christmas I can't remember what book it was. And he just wanted to, he tried to take a bite out of it as a little kid because he just loved it so much. <laughs> That's my relationship with books. I loved, especially library books. I was fascinated by the Mylar covers. Um, when I was, my, both my parents always worked. So uh, my first trip to the library with were with our neighbors and I didn't have a library card so I couldn't check any, out any books. So I just sat on the floor and I would read the books there. So, you know, holding these books, 
looking at the pictures and not being able to take them home with me, I think made them more precious. And when I got to high school and my sister was really the one who got us going to the library seriously, I just, you know, I couldn't get enough of it. My first job was at a library, worked in I think four different libraries. Um, so always books, books, books. But when you tell your high school guidance counselor you like writing, they say, oh, so you can be a journalist. And at that time, that was in the 80s, graduated in 1986, and I'm thinking, well, journalist, that means I have to go to Beirut. I don't want to go to Beirut. Um, so never ever said, I didn't know there was such a thing as like a master of fine arts in, in writing. You know, nobody said, well, you could write books, which it is hard to make a living writing books. I did try, so creative writing in college, um, we were writing, we were reading very, uh, you know, we were reading Thomas Pynchon, I think. Um, crying of Lot 49 and obscure kind of stuff. And um, yeah, so that, that didn't work for me. And then um, you probably heard of Monday Mass. Her most famous book is probably Still a Mango Shaped Space. She's a middle grade author mm -hmm. and she's written over 20 books now, I think. But I met her in an adult school writing class when she was working on Mango Shaped Space. We kept in touch. And she got to a point where her, her fiction writing career was going well, but she still had a contract outstanding for a school library book about Halloween for fifth and sixth graders. So Ooh. she had me, yeah, and I needed, um, I was strapped for cash. So she paid me to ghostwrite that book, ghostwrite most of it. I think she wrote, wrote one chapter. Yeah. And so I was writing this book about Halloween for elementary school, middle, middle schoolers. And it was fun. I enjoyed doing the research. It was a challenge because like how they wanted me to cover the Greenwich Village Halloween Parade. How do you cover the Greenwich Village Halloween Parade for fifth <laughs> and sixth graders? It was a little <laughs> tough. And I thought, I thought it would be fun to write a book like this about Walpurgis Night, but for adults. Yeah. You know, it's well, it's like the, the European flip side of Halloween in April for adults. And one of the books that w Wendy gave me a whole box of books that she had already bought for research. And one of them was Celebrate Halloween by, I always forget if she's Silver Raven, Ravenwolf or Raven Silverwolf. Um, it was Silver, a little Silver Ravenwolf. Book. Yeah. Yeah. Silver Ravenwolf. And I thought I could write a book like this about Walpurgis Night. And so I queried, I think I queried one other publisher who said great idea but too obscure and then I queried Llewellyn and they said yeah let's let's take a chance on an unpublished author and that became that book became Night of the Witches. Were there any books um, when you were young that really influenced you? I because I, I could I asked that question because I really see recurring in your writing a real love of mythology and folk ways and magic. Um, was there anything that really inspired you when you were young that kind of caught your attention and kind of set the path for you? Uh, yeah, The Hobbit was big. Um, I was a poor reader, so it took me about 30 years to finish The Hobbit. We, <laughs> I yeah, think you're there we, with most people, yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> Just because I was like, I was the kind of kid, um, I, I still do this. I'll start five books, but I'll only finish one. Yeah. And um, so we had The Hobbit. We went to Germany on vacation to visit relatives in 1978, and we had the mass market paperback of The Hobbit. And this was shortly after the 
the Rankin Bass animated Hobbit had been on TV. Oh, so yeah. I'd seen that. I loved that. I was trying to read this book. I would have been 10. Um, my sister had read it, so I was asking her questions about it because she, she was a book finisher. And um, she was, you know, kind of explaining, remember asking her things like, well, how big is a Hobbit? Why are there no dwarf women? How can we have more dwarves if there's only dwarf men? And the fun part of it was reading it in Germany. We were in Northern Germany. And uh, my grandmother, she used to, she liked bus trips. So she would drag us around on bus trips. And part of the bus trip, um, we were in Bad Bevensen in the Lüneberger Heide in North western germany and there was uh right by the what you would now call an airbnb was um there was this really dark forest of conifers that we we hiked through and i remember hiking through and saying to my sister does this remind you of anything and she says this is like mirkwood i'm like yeah it's like mirkwood so so the hobbit just reading the hobbit in that setting or beginning to read the hobbit in that setting um i finally finished when my second um, when my son was born and I read it aloud to him, that was the first time that I finished it all the way, even though I have read the entire Rings trilogy. Um, so The Hobbit was was instrumental. There was also a book of Norse mythology in my that my grandmother had in Germany, because we would go mm -hmm. visit her about every other summer. And we would bring books with us from home. And then we always stayed for a month. So eventually we would finish the books and the only, I didn't speak much German at the time. I certainly couldn't read it. So then she had two English language books at home. One was like little mystery stories that were meant for English learners and they had the vocabulary on the bottom. And one was Norse mythology. It had, I think it had only like three myths in them, mostly about Thor. And yeah. so I would end up reading that every summer just because there was nothing left to read so i got comfortable norse mythology always seemed like something friendly something familiar in um 2011 you wrote night of the witches folklore traditions and recipes for celebrating walpurgis night that's something that um you know we've heard so much about it in so many books so many uh, works of fiction um, reference it and you know, many metaphysical books talk about it as well. Um, so what kind of captivated you to write about Walpurgis Night? Um, what kind of, you know, I, I know we talked about this already and how you kind of got to write it, but what kind of uh, captivated your interest about Walpurgis Night and how did you get to write this book? That was another library moment for me. I was a shelver at the library in Madison, New Jersey in the children's room. And um, like any good shelver, um, of course, I have to look at the books thumb through the most interesting books before I put them on the shelf. And I can't remember what book it was, but there was a picture of um, kids celebrate kids dressed as witches celebrating Walpurgis night. And I saw that there it was a European thing. It was in the springtime, kids dressed as witches, just like at Halloween. And I just kind of filed away as, well, that's cool. And didn't really think about it again until um, I was working on Celebrate. Halloween uh, for Wendy Mass, and it just kind of clicked. Hey, and I, and I looked, kind of looked around, and I could not find another English language book, a whole book, on Walpurgis Night. So I thought, hey, this is my niche, and I went for it. 
In 2013, you wrote your first um, book dealing with um, the topic of Christmas. And this was The Old Magic of Christmas, Yuletide Traditions for the Darkest Days of the Year. This is your first book about this magical holiday season. Have you always been a fan of this holiday? Yeah, um, I've always loved Christmas Eve best. Um, I've always liked Advent best, which um, in our house, because we're German, we, you celebrate Advent at home and uh, you light one candle on each of the four Sundays leading up to Advent. If Christmas Eve is on a Sunday, that's fourth Advent. Otherwise, you, it's the four Sundays before you light one more candle each Sunday. So on the fourth, you have four candles and um, you eat cookies. In the, in the afternoon, you wait till it gets dark, you light the candles, you make tea or coffee, cocoa, and you eat cookies. And so that was, that was something special that only, pretty much only our family did. Nobody else I knew did that at home in New Jersey. Uh, so it was something unique and it's, it's, a, it's the no pressure thing. Usually early in the season, we would eat store-bought balls and cookies because my mom, um, she would start baking the Saturday after Thanksgiving but then those cookies were sealed in a tin because they were not ready yet. Like the flavors have to coalesce. So she would have made the Stollen, the Anastrops, maybe the Lebkuchen, and we would have maybe um, end pieces or duds with um, yeah. Advent coffee. And then as you get closer, then, then she would start to bring out and you have more homemade things on the plate. And so it was a really, that was a special thing. And I think I, I do it with my kids and um, it's a very, I guess it's what they nowadays, they would call hugula. The, you know, the, there's this movement for the, all the Scandinavian cozy things that people are learning about. And that's, yeah. that's one of them. Nice. I like that a lot. Um, we did something like that when my son was small, kind of building up to, the solstice which i've always liked and it just, yeah it's definitely kind of solstice fun. related because you know yeah. it's getting more and more light as you add more candles um are, are there any traditions in the book that you've particularly captivated with oh in old Mad christmas yeah um okay that was as you said that came out in um 2013 quite a while ago so i'm thinking <laughs> back i mean i loved the I really loved all the cross-dressing. Yeah. Um, and I think that's, uh, that gave me, has gotten me some LGBTQ following, which I didn't anticipate, but when, you know, people were starting to, to follow me on Facebook and I'm like, where are some of my followers gay? And then they're like, oh, cause I have, there's so much about Christmas that's um, gender bending. Yeah. Uh, I included a story in there. Uh, I love the St. Louis and that's not anything I take part of. I just like the image. Um, the girl who dresses in the, like, looks like a white nightgown. Um, she has the crown of candles on her head and she delivers buns on the morning of December 13th, which is the old style winter solstice, mm -hmm. I think. It was at one point when they kept playing around with the calendars, at one point, December 13th was when the winter solstice fell. Um, and so I included a, a story about... Um, there was a boy in Sweden and he wanted to be the Lucia and his classmates voted him the Lucia and, and he looked beautiful, long, long red curly hair. 
and I think there was some pushback from the school, but he finally got to play the Lucia in the oh, Lucia wow. pageant. Yeah, and he looked great. Um, and I said, so the, before the Lucia, there were the Star Boys, and the Star Boys, they performed sort of the same function. And before that, they would put the candles on a cow. So <laughs> it's really, uh, you know, it was it's not an exclusively female thing. And then you have the whole, um, uh, there were often a boy would play the role of Luca in Eastern Europe, who was an old woman who would come around and make sure that all the children were behaving around the same time of year. And um, what else? Oh, the whole, the whole Christkind thing, the Christ child, where the, the Christ, where it's a girl playing the role of the Christ child, who's a boy, but she's dressed totally like a girl. And, right. and yeah, so I just, yeah, that was a lot of fun. In uh, 2019, you wrote The Lore of Old Elfland, Secrets from the Bronze Age to Middle Earth. How did this book begin for you? I know we, we talked a little bit about your love of Lord of the Rings and else, but what, when did you start studying the, uh, the folklore of this topic? Um, I've, always, I've always been into elves. Um, when I was doing writing the Christmas book, but the, my favorite chapter to write was the one about the elves and the one with the, the folktale of the princess and the mound. And I thought, wouldn't it be fun just to write a book just about elves? And and then and maybe people would think of me not just twice a year, Walpurgis Night and Christmas, because right. this would be for the whole year, elves yeah. all around the year. In fact, the original concept was, I think I called it a handbook of the elven year. I never get to keep my working titles. Um, yeah, so yeah, I think, Lights in the Forest, A Handbook of the Elven Year. That was the, the working title. Um, but my editor said, no, we don't want it to do it like a, I think I always try to write books like a calendar because I think it'll be easier. And then my editor says, no, group it thematically. Um, but El the Elfland does have, it's got a Christmas chapter. It's got sort of a Halloween chapter because we deal with Alpha Bloat, uh, which happens in October. Um, so yeah, the elves really took off. And that was a that was a very personal book for me because um, I share the book about, you know, reading The Hobbit in Germany, a lot of it sitting in an old, inside an old wardrobe. And uh, just because of my relationship with, with the landscape of Northern Germany. And so I share some stories from that part of the world. And um, the book did very poorly. Uh, I don't know if like people didn't, you know, didn't were not interested in the personal details of me, or it was not a southern Scandinavia, northern Germany is maybe not it's not on people's radar that part of the world. In fact, I've been, have people tell me that I can't possibly be going to the beach when I go to Germany because Germany doesn't have a coastline. I'm like, yeah, they do. <laughs> <laughs> and ships are a big, ships are a big thing. Um, yeah, so that book, that's my favorite book that I've written. That's the one that I've been most proud of. And um, it sank like a stone. It's already out of print. You know, I've, I've, I've heard about that with writers. And I, I was having this conversation with a writer the other day. And it, it's so much a game of chance, I think, with books. You really like one year you publish something. And if you just publish it, five, 10 years later, it's suddenly a top 10 bestseller. 
and it's rhyme or reason. It's the tide of people's interest or just how the market works or how the booksellers push the books. I mean, it's, it's crazy, isn't it? And sometimes you just don't know, like Johnny Geller, who's a famous literary agent, he said sometimes, you know, the book, uh, the agent loves it, the editor loves it, they put it out there and just no one, no one touches it and you don't know why, you just don't know why. Yeah, I mean, yeah, like how many authors have you heard of that, you know, throughout their entire life, they're impoverished. And then they die and their books become famous three years later. And it's like, the most... <laughs> thanks a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> thanks a lot, Johnny Come Lately's, you know, really could have mm -hmm. used you a few years earlier. Yeah, because you bought it a little sooner. Now, I, I was talking off mic about how much I love your research and, and how well researched these books are. Um, did you learn anything interesting in your research for this book? I mean, it must have been fantastic pouring through different things and doing research on elves. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, I always learned something. Um, it was fun writing the herb chapter. I tried to put an herbal chapter in. I don't know if I try. It just kind of happens that there's an herbal chapter in all of my books. And just the, the stories. What I loved about... Um, the stories in this one, like I make a distinction in the introduction, the difference to, between fairy tales and folk tales. And fairy tales are usually, um, it's, you know, it's in another realm, it's a king and a queen and stuff that, you know, didn't never actually happened because it's, it's so out there. It doesn't ground it in space or time. And folk tales are so specific even the titles, I can't think of any, I'm trying to think of like one about whistling and, you know, the girl from, how the girl from so-and-so tricked the troll from such and such a place and so specific. And it usually places it, you know, this was in my grandmother's time or they still speak of this. And yet the stuff that's happening is so crazy that you're wondering, well, did this, did this actually happen? They're just so quirky and so specific and so like things that happen like a, a a bride being abducted on her wedding night that's a big that's a big motif you know get, getting abducted by the elves and then in one she's abducted she she um i think it's from norway this one she's told she knows the fairies are going to abduct her because she stole one of their cows right and she figures as long as she doesn't go outside during her her wedding day she'll be okay. But this is like 18th century Norway. And finally, she's got to go to the bathroom. So she leaves the house, she's abducted. And then a little time later, a goat brings back the wedding crown, spreads a napkin on the step of the house, places the wedding crown on it and leaves. So you're just like, what is that about? <laughs> yeah. And I, but I just, I just love it. Yeah, they're so quirky, they're so strange. I just love them. Now, I know that um, I've talked with many people who are Tolkien fans, and they talk about elves extensively, maybe exhaustively. I, I know that um, Tolkien, you know, he he created this whole universe that's his, and it must overlap with mythology um, somewhat. Have you ever had people that talk to you about the book that maybe confuse the two, or do you talk about that in your book? Um, there is much confusion with the elves. I know that there's this confuses me. I think there's, there's people who follow a religion 
based on Tolkien's elves. Oh dear God, really? Which, well, yeah, which I don't understand because I'm like, you know, he made that up. Yeah. Um, but hey, I mean, fair play to you if you like. Yeah, if you like to do that, I, I, I'm not knocking it. I'm, I'm okay. Yeah, and it does. It doesn't doesn't you know knock my enjoyment of Tolkien. And there's a lot of worse things that people could be doing with their lives. So, and then one time I was doing a podcast and the host there goes my earbud the host asked me do you think that we will ever find like the remains of elves who died in the flood and and i kind of i was tempted to say did you read the book <laughs> it's about folklore yeah. and i said no i i i don't think we will <laughs> um so yeah, I think elves are, I, I mean, there. it could be that my book didn't do very well because I said in it that I didn't believe in elves. I oh, said yeah. that, you know, I, I love the elves. I was fascinated by the elves and it's not important for me to believe that they actually exist. So maybe they scuttled my, they could have scuttled the book. I don't know. Um, but what does Tolkien say something, just because something's not real doesn't mean it's not true. And I yeah. think elves are true. Yeah. They are um, extensions of our imagination. I think they're often our perceptions of the dead. Um, I think many of them were originally ancestors and came from ancestor worship. And um, yeah, I think I think what's as interesting as even more interesting than elves actually existing is questioning why do we believe in them. And what, what do they do for us? And it's, it was interesting in reading the British, not so much the, the continental, but the British fairy stories, they have a lot in common with uh, alien abduction stories. Yes. Yeah. So somebody, some people might say, oh, well, fairies are actually aliens. But I'm more inclined to believe aliens are fulfilling a psychological role now that fairies used to fill in the old days i like that very good so christmas again i want to talk to you about the christmas secret history again. of christmas baking recipes and stories for tomb offerings to gingerbread boys will be out now i really love this book and i was surprised and you said that you're not a really big baker because i've really found the book to be have some really amazing insights into baking and especially European baking. I was also really captivated as to the, um, I, I really love the detail that you put in here that I think oftentimes people, we get little pithy glimpses into European baking, especially around Christmas in most cookbooks. Like if you read the King Arthur flower, you know, book that'll have, you know, mentions of baking, but they don't really, talk more so if you want to know more you need something like your book because you really do explain it and go into it in depth and you have a lot of great artwork and illustrations in here that really were very well done and i really have to applaud the art department very well and for doing an amazing job on this book do you want to talk about this book a little bit and how you were inspired to write it and um what the research was like for you because because I, I, I really was impressed by the extensive research you did for this well, you said, I said, I said I wasn't a baking geek, but you mentioned King Arthur and King Arthur flower. And when the King Arthur flower catalog comes in, um, 
I sit and I page through it. Yeah. Yeah. With much interest. Um, yeah. I love King of the Flower. The King Arthur, most, most of the recipes are made. Um, this is not a, not paid promotion, but most of the recipes were made with King Arthur flour. Well, it's um, good stuff. I love their logo too. They have the beautiful logo with the, yes. the wheat stalks that are the crown. Um, yeah. So um, where were we? Research or baking? Um, you know, either or. I mean, how did you how did you come <laughs> to do this, or. and what was the process like, and, and how long? When did you conceive of this, and how long did it take to write? Because I mean, it's no, it's no flimsy pamphlet here. It's it's a comprehensive work. Um, oh, thank and, you. And the writing is <laughs> like is is uh, I thought very well thought out. The chapters were great. And just looking through it, I really loved again the art the art direction, which I think is so lacking in so many cookbooks. You just usually here you go recipe that's it you know and it's like something your yeah. grandmother mm -hmm. wrote on the back of an mm -hmm. envelope you know and you're like i needed more more would be nice and your book gives it so thank you yeah. well um yes yeah, so, well those recipes on the backs of envelopes are are precious hold on to them if you have them yeah. um yeah and i you know i reference because a lot of them i was using my my mother my mother fortunately is still alive she's 85 so she was a big um source of information not always a reliable source because she would say you know something about recipe and then I look at well you have allspice in that did you know you have allspice did i did i put allspice in that yes it says allspice right there where you wrote down 35 years ago um well my first so night of the witches i i i'm a baker i'm a cook a cookbook writer in the tradition in the long tradition of women cookbook writers, starting maybe all the way with Hannah Glass in that um, I don't have a degree. Uh, there's not a lot I know how to do. I've been the mother of, I've raised two kids as a single mom. And baking is something that we always did at home. It's something I know how to do. It's something that I can write about and make a little bit of money. And that's for, for I mentioned Hannah Glass, Melinda Russell. Um, that's been the also oh what's her uh, uh, the one who wrote Mary, Mary had a little little lamb Sarah Josepha Hale also cookbook writer um, trying to just trying to support your family so there were actually it, it looks like a long time between my Chris, first Christmas book coming out in 2013 and Lore of Old Elfland coming out in 2019 but I had actually almost finished one book that Llewellyn event said no we don't want it. And then the whole other book, Llewellyn said, no, we don't want it because they did not have crafts and recipes in it. Had I known when I wrote my first book that every other book after it would have to have crafts and recipes in it, I might not have done it. <laughs> so with this one, I thought, okay, I'll just go with it and make it mostly, mostly recipes. If that's what people want, that's why I, I can do a recipe. Um, and I do like to bake. I think because of the book still, even though I submitted the, you know, did the, the final copy, um, you know, the final draft about a year ago, I'm still a little bit burnt out because when you, when you compose a recipe, there were some that, that I said, you know, this is my mom's recipe. Okay, there it is. But when it was things like um, the different kinds of gingerbreads that I had never actually made before, I can't just go online and like find a recipe for the Polish gingerbread Pirnitschki and then publish that because that's 
somebody else's recipe. So I would be looking at three, four, and five different recipes. What did I like about them? What did I want to change to make it my own? And then sometimes when I did change, if sometimes I changed too many things to make it my own and I made it and it wasn't good. So then you have to go back to the drawing board, make it again. You have to write down the measurements. I'm more of a seat of the pants cook. Yeah. But with too. this, you've got to write everything down because you've got to then put that other people will be able to make it. Um, so yeah, but but I think for me, maybe when I can get to the point, yeah, I, I'm looking for really looking forward to this Christmas season, just baking, not for fun, just going wild and putting green tea and things and not not having to do the traditional thing. I think, uh, yeah, because my the library where I work, they were the guinea pigs for a lot of the recipes. Because you know how the, the staff room table, anything, usually anything you put on the staff room table, people will eat. Yeah, um, yeah. But we have, it's it's sort of the American palate reigns in our staff room. If you give them a brownie or a cupcake, they're very happy. But they see this, this like if when I brought in Elise and Lebkuchen, they see this thing that they've never seen before and they were highly suspicious of it. Yeah, um, I know that Although feeling. some... Somebody did, I was praised for my Egyptian tiger nut cakes. Somebody was oh, nice. brave enough to try an Egyptian tiger nut cake and she liked it. Nice. Now in the intro, you, you talk about um, a friend had commented, oh, that sounds really light. And you said, no, it can be really dark. The topic of writing about Christmas uh, baking. Can you talk about that yes. a little bit? I, I really like that bit. Yeah, as I mean, I was thinking it would be, it'd be medieval, um, the book would be much more straightforward the research than it was i should have learned because this is my four, fourth book and the research is never as straightforward as you think it's going to be um so yeah there is a danger i think of people might read this book and think i never want i'm never going to bake a christmas cookie again because it is it is dark there the, there is blood in these recipes um yeah. I hope people will still bake, but I want them to, like my um, uh, editor said, one of the editors, I think the copy editor said, you know, I will think, I will think about that little boy in um, on the island of Reunion, a little enslaved boy who revolutionized the way we pollinate vanilla flowers. She said she'll think of him whenever she adds vanilla to something in her kitchen. So to, to people to know these these very complex stories, I don't know. I mean, you learn in 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 elementary school, you know. Oh, they went to look for the spice islands because they wanted the spices, and then they got the spices. But no, there's a there's a lot going on there. There was enslavement and slaughter and highly unethical business practices going on to get these these spices from the places where they grew into our cabinets oh and they also will tell you we learned we learned in school how the europeans wanted spices because they needed it to take the away the taste of the rotten meat which is totally false um like the Europeans have been, they've been eating meat for thousands and thousands of years. They knew how to preserve meat. Yeah. They, 
They went after the spices because they liked the way they tasted and it was something special and it was something exotic. There, there are a lot of good bits I liked in this. Um, I love the uh, throw the devil a bone portion of the book. Can you talk about that? And am I pronouncing it right? Duvacator? I think so. Um, I speak, I speak Pledoich, which is close to Dutch, but I don't actually speak Dutch. So um, yeah, I would say, I would say Duvacata, maybe, um, yeah. which is the devil's cat. And that uh, the research into that one kind of sort of answered a question that had arisen in my mind when um, I was researching Lucia buns for Old Magic of Christmas. I came across some little note about people eating cat buns on St. Nicholas Day, but I couldn't I couldn't find any more. And I remembered. Um, there was a historical author, Dorothy Dunnett, who wrote a series of books called uh, The House of Niccolo about a Flemish, an upstart, illegitimate son, Flemish merchant, um, who, who it's all, it takes place in the 15th century and follows him from Flanders through the Mediterranean. I think he ends up like doing the salt trade in Africa. It's exciting, adventurous, a um, lot of historical detail. And there's one part I remembered where he went to an island that was dedicated, there was a shrine to St. Nicholas and there were feral cats everywhere and oh, wow. hadn't really thought about that. And then researching, researching the Duvacata or the Duvacata, um, I came across, I found the shrine in the Mediterranean. There is a shrine to St. Nicholas with lots of feral cats and um, Read the chapter, but uh, there is a there seems to be a connection between Saint Nicholas, cats, Lucia buns, and the solstice. We just don't know kind of like which direction the influences were flowing. Were they flowing north to south, or were they flowing south to north? Now, um, there was a portion I really liked. I've always been captivated by the Italian story of La Bafana. And you talk about oh, yeah. her a little bit in this book. Can you can you talk about that a little bit for our audience? Uh, well, that I was lucky because when I was working um, at the Berkeley Heights Library in New Jersey, our I think when I was when I was I think after I'd submitted the Old Magic of Christmas manuscript, maybe already, and the reference librarian mentioned how she had played the role of La Bafana when she was in school. I know. Could you not have told me that? sooner. <laughs> so this time I made a date and I went to her house and I interviewed her about her experiencing her experience playing La Bafana, uh, who was a Italian witch who she was an old lady and the three wise men came by and asked her directions to Bethlehem. And she said, don't, don't bother me. I am cleaning my house. So they walked on and then she thought, oh, they, they mentioned they were going to go visit some special baby. I should have gone with them. I'm going to forget the house. I'm going to go with them. She baked some cookies and she um, hurried after them. But of course, she never found them. They had moved on um, down the road. And so she flies around still looking for the Christ child. And she drops presents down the chimney just in case baby Jesus might be in that house. Um, so... Yeah, and she differs, you know, from different parts of Italy. And uh, 
and uh, yeah, so you can read my friend Anne, the librarian's story about her own personal experience playing the role of Bafana. You have a recipe for uh, something I like, but I don't think many other people have heard of or eaten much of it, and that's black cake. Um, what was your experience with the baking of it, and did you like it? Oh gosh, okay, that was that was intense. I had never heard of it until a couple of years ago. I was at a barbecue um, at my friend's house, and one of the other guests was he was originally from Trinidad, and he I said I think I said somehow cake came out. Like probably probably brought a cake. Cake came up, and he mentioned black cake, and how his his aunt used to make or his godmother used to make black cake. And I said, "What's that? I've never heard of that." And he said, "You have never heard of that." And I hadn't, so he told me it's it's made with um, molasses and fruit, and uh, so that was very. He told some entertaining stories about it, about it's it's soaked in rum. Uh, so he told a story about him him eating it as a child when he wasn't supposed to. And so I filed that away. And when I decided to write the Christmas book, um, I asked my my friend Betty to get me in touch with him. And so I talked to him on the phone and yeah, I'm still, he still sends me, um, his name is Wayne and he still sends me regularly um, videos, music videos from, from Trinidad, from the traditional bands who play in Trinidad. Uh, so he's getting a copy when the book comes out. So he gave me a lot of pointers on, on, on making the cake. Uh, one pointer that I forgot when I was making it was then you need to add, you heat brown sugar. Yeah. That's what makes, what makes the cake black is the cooked brown sugar. And he said, when you add the water to the hot brown sugar, add it slowly. And I <laughs> forgot that. Now I know why slow, because it, it will go up like a volcano and I sent him a picture of the stove I texted him a picture of the stove <laughs> after that had happened he's I told you to add it slowly yeah There's but yeah black cake is um uh, throughout the in in a lot of places in the Caribbean black cake is the Christmas cake it's also they have it at Easter they have it at weddings um when they you put uh cover it in marzipan and then a hard white uh, white uh Queens, like what are they? Royal frosting on top of it. But yeah, that's pretty much the centerpiece of the Caribbean Christmas dinner. Yeah, it's a lot like a old school British Christmas cake that you used to see. I don't think they really do much of that anymore, though. I it's had the similar to to yeah, it's similar to like a Victorian Christmas fruit cake. Yeah. And then yet it's different. And then again, it's different because everybody puts their own spin on things. Yeah, I remember uh, in uh, All Creatures Great and Small, James would go to house to house and every, every one of his clients would give him a slice of Christmas cake and it was soaked yes. in alcohol and he was schnockered mm -hmm. by the end of his. <laughs> and she and I remember the one, the one, at least on the BBC version, the one housewife, she would sit there and watch him, you know, yeah. like, how is it? How is it? And he was, oh, it's the best ever. <laughs> I love that. I make a, I, well, I don't, I haven't made it in a while, but I used to make the Scottish black bun and it was um, basically the same thing, but it is in a, uh, encased in a uh, inedible flour, flour and water pastry. And you basically cook it and then you make a little hole in the top and pull out kind of a plug. And then you will top up the alcohol. You'll pour some whiskey in every, mm -hmm. uh, every few days or so. And then you'll put the plug back, cover it in cheesecloth. 
take the you know a few days later do the same thing and you do that for months you do that in october and by the time christmas rolls around it's basically solidified alcohol yeah yeah with black cake you can do that too you can keep you can eat it right away or you can just keep dousing it for potentially forever and also the um the fruits for the black cake you soak them in rum or or there's other alcohol you can use you can do whiskey um you can do port um so you soak that from i was a little nervous because i have these fruits soak i had these throughout the summer um soaking in rum and every morning i would get up and stir them because wayne said get up stir, stir them regularly and i in one one article i read uh, a woman who was new to making black cake i think she was jamaican and she mentioned to her her brother-in-law in you know in maybe july i've started soaking the fruit for the black cake for christmas and he said <laughs> great it'll be ready for christmas next year <laughs> yeah wow i um I, I grew up with fruit cake i like it like my grandmother from texas would make it with lots of pecans and my grandmother from arkansas would make it with lots of walnuts i don't know what the dichotomy was there but I like it. A lot of people uh, complain about it, but I've always liked it. Do you like it? Fruitcake? Yeah. Especially. Not especially. Although I'm ready to I'm ready to yeah, to to get into it again. It's not my favorite. But you mentioned um pecans and I mentioned in my glossary that nobody has can agree how to pronounce it. I think the yeah. dichotomy is walnut is old world and pecan is a new world nuts. Yeah. So especially from the South, you're going to have pecans. And my, my daughter recently moved to Las Cruces and she says there, it's a big industry there, and but they say it pecan. So that's a third pronunciation. How do you think the traditions for Christmas baking have evolved over time? What do you think the changes have been or the ones that you've noticed? Um, well, the biggest change was these things becoming Christmas foods because none of them were, they were all eaten for a long time before they became Christmas foods. Um, like if you want, if you, if I had to say like the most influential place on Christmas baking would probably, I would have to say would be 11th century Baghdad. Yeah, that's probably where marzipan was invented. That's where candy making reached a height. They were using spices. Um, it was really a cosmopolitan place to be. And um, so when it was um, the Arabs who brought marzipan or marzipan for English speakers, it really there is an English word for marzipan, which is March pain, but nobody uses it. Um, so marzipan was brought, you know came probably through Alexandria into uh, Europe. Sugar also was introduced by the Arabs into Europe. Um, the spices came from anywhere from Southeast Asia, India, ginger and pepper coming from India, usually originally through the port of Alexandria in Egypt. Um, the Jews had a lot of the traditions like challah, was not always what we we think of you know the braided loaf today it went through yeah. several different um shapes and that that duvicata uh the bone-shaped pastry um may have something to do 
with with challah because I think they weren't really baking with yeast. Um, you know, by the time there was the first Jewish colony in Cologne in Germany, the the, uh, the, the Germans were still baking, you know, sort of flat, flat, not so leavened breads. Yeah. So that was a big influence. And probably it was probably Jewish traders who first introduced gingerbread, what, the, what became Lebkuchen in Germany and gingerbread in England. Um, and that was gingerbread was uh, holiday food and wedding food in Jewish families through the Middle Ages. So it's at the biggest, the biggest evolution was these foods becoming not just Christmas foods, but Christian foods. Yeah. Now, are, are, I mean, I, I want to say because, you know, it's Christmas, so there must be a lot of religious and cultural influences on Christmas baking. What did some of the things that you saw that were the most surprising in your research regarding the religious influence on holiday baking? Um, I was surprised about the, the Stollen. The Stollen is a German Christmas cake slash bread. There's a baking soda version. There's a yeast version, um, which was one I never, I never really liked it growing up. It was something we ate it because it was Christmas. We, that was Christmas breakfast was when we would first slice in, into the Stollen. Um, and it was just, I, even though I didn't like it, I had to eat it because it was Christmas morning and I felt like Christmas morning would not be complete unless you have some stone. Uh, but now I really love it. And, um, it was, yeah, there was a whole thing in Saxony, the principality of Saxony in the, sometime in the middle ages. Um, it's in the book. Uh, where the elector of Saxony was petitioning the Pope to be allowed to, that the bakers could put butter in the stone, even though they were baking during Advent. And Advent in the Middle Ages was a Lenten season. It was a season of fasting. So they weren't yeah. supposed to be using butter. So their only other choices were to use olive oil, which by the time it got to Saxony, it was rancid. Yeah. Or to use rapeseed oil, which was something that they, at that time, uh, rapeseed oil, oil is the same as canola oil, um, but it's a different species. It's been genetically engineered. So canola, canola oil tastes pretty good. The rapeseed oil in those days did not taste good, and you would just use it to put in your your oil lamp. Uh, yeah. So it was not good tasting stolen in those days. And they finally got permission from the Pope. So this is pre-Martin Luther. Um to use butter in the stone and that that is when it took off what's your favorite thing to bake what's the thing that you really anticipate making uh, each year as it gets closer to christmas this year i'm really looking forward to making lebkuchen again because i feel like i during the writing of this book my lebkuchen skills really it's it, i make some good lebkuchen um it, which is it's okay on the package. If you buy it, it's translated as gingerbread. My mother is of the school that there should not be any ginger in Lebkuchen. Uh, the the sort of the headquarters of Lebkuchen baking is in Nuremberg, Germany, um, and they say there are five spices, but they don't tell you what the fifth one is. I think the fifth is probably ginger. Um, not necessarily. So I've gotten really good um, at making the candied 
orange and lemon peel that goes into it. Because uh, if you if you make it too tough, it won't be good. If you make it too soft, it, it'll be mushy. Um, so that to me, because it has all the flavors, it's got the lemon, the orange, the spices, um, the matzipan. I'm now proud to say I can make my own matzipan, apricot wow. jam. And so it's just a balance of flavors and you make it early, you put it aside so it coalesces. And then if the, a lot of these cookies are, you, you take a bite, you're chewing it. Now, when you have like a sugar cookie, you bite into it, it tastes a certain way, you keep chewing it, it still tastes that way. Yeah. With these recipes, um, they've got so much going on in them. You take a bite, it tastes one way. You keep chewing, oh, now I taste the molasses. Now I taste the almond. And it's like a whole, it's an experience. So my last question, what is next for you? What is next for me? Oh, so glad you asked. Um, I, I like to take a break between nonfiction. Um, I have always, I think it's most, most nonfiction, many nonfiction writers dream to write a novel. Um, I've written a couple novels, none of them have been published. Um, so I am, uh, my manuscript is out to my beta readers right now um, for a science fiction novel. Ooh. And I'm, I am planning to go rogue with this one. Nice. Uh, it's, uh, you know, to get traditionally published, you need to, to write a story that tens of thousands of people want to read. And right. um, with, with my nonfiction books, I think thousands of people have enjoyed, enjoyed it. And I'm very happy with that. So I think uh, with this, I think maybe hundreds of people will like to read my novel. Um, it seems kind of out of left field, but my main character is a university student on another planet and her major is old earth feasts and festivals. Nice. So that's the tie-in. That's my bridge from nonfiction to fiction. I like that. I'm looking forward to that then. That sounds great. I'm glad to hear it. Linda, I want to thank you for being on the podcast. I've really enjoyed getting a chance to talk to you. I hope we can have you on here again sometime. I'd love to come back. Thanks so much. That was my conversation with author Linda Radich. You can pre-order her book, The Old Magic of Christmas, by going to the link in the bio. Next week, we'll be speaking with author Crystal Blanton. She is the author of such books as Bringing Race to the Table, as well as Shades of Faith and Shades of Ritual. We'll be speaking to her next week. Until then, hope you have a blessed week.